when he was born a Muslim. Because this is being recorded this morning, I'm not going to mention the country he's from. But he's from a nation where there are over 40,000 mosques and not a single visible church. Samuel's father was a mullah. His grandfather was a mullah. His brother was a mullah. And Samuel was trained to be a mullah. I asked him when we met for the first time in the middle of a war zone, how do you become a mullah? And he says, oh, you just memorize the Quran and learn a few chants to, enter, to uh, lead the people in prayer, and you're a mullah. Well, because of the war going on, first there was an invasion, and then there was civil war, he became a refugee. And while in that refugee camp, he was a curious man, eager to learn, found a library, and in that library came across a number of religious books and decided he wanted to find out about other religions, what other people believed. And in the course of that came across a Bible and began to read the Bible. And over a period of a couple of years came to know our Lord Jesus. After the war ended, he returned to his country and started sharing his faith. Now, he was very creative because obviously he couldn't go around preaching on the street corner. What he would do is he'd go into coffee shops or tea shops and sit down and he might see someone reading a paper and he would make a comment about some piece of news. And, or he might ask a question about the extremist fundamentalist group that was pretty much in charge of that region. And if the person responded openly, he might take the next step and the next step. And if the person seemed very strong in his Islamic belief and resistant to any conversation, then he would stop, and that's as far as he would go. In the course of probably a year or two, he led many of his fellow countrymen to Christ. He'd started several little house churches because there they couldn't worship openly. There would be two or three families that would meet together in these little uh, house fellowships. Uh, it was an amazing story. And uh, when we met, it was after midnight in a secret location. And as we finished and I prayed with him, so I said, where do you go? What, what, what's your future? What are you going to do? And he proudly said, I want to be a mullah for Jesus. <laughs> Today's epistle reading from Hebrews 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's often referred to as the hall of faith. And when I think of Samuel, I think of him in this context as one worthy of mention in this chapter. By faith, he is responsible for many Muslims becoming followers of Jesus. When I was working with Brother Andrew, the author of God's Smuggler and founder of the ministry I've worked with for 17 years, 
he and I often talked about this chapter, and he would say that Hebrews 11.1 1 is the most important verse in the Bible. And I would protest. I would say, no, wait, what about John 3.16? Uh, you know, certainly there's other verses that are... And he would say, no, read the verse. So I would read it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he made the point, without faith, we can't believe that God so loved the world that he gave his son. The key to eternal life is believing in the son. In other words, faith is the key. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But what exactly is faith? Go back to verse 1. Very simply, it is confidence in the reality of what we cannot see. The rest of Hebrews 11 unpacks that. It demonstrates what faith looks like. Often we think of faith as more like intellectual assent. But it's actually demonstrated by how we live, and by our actions. We see faith everywhere in Scripture. For example, in our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah this morning, God says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Well, we can't see God filling heaven and earth. We must take that by faith. In verse 3 of Hebrews 11, we read, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So Jeremiah's statement makes perfect sense if we accept that God is creator of heaven and earth. This morning I want us to look at the key phrase in Hebrews. It's mentioned three times in the first three verses of our reading. By faith. It's mentioned... 14 more times in this chapter and three other times the phrase through faith is used. So 20 times in about 40 verses we are reminded that we as Christians, the Christian life is lived by faith. Great. But what does faith look like? Let's take a minute to review the list in our epistle reading. Verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Let's stop there for a moment. I went back this week and looked at Exodus 14. The people of Israel were terrified. It says, they feared greatly, and they said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, does that sound like faith to you? <laughs> Moses seems to be the one that had faith. He said to the people, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Hmm. So I scratch my head a little bit, but the writer of Hebrews commends the people of the uh, 
at the exodus for their faith. Well, let's go to the next verse. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Have you ever thought about what the people were thinking about those seven days as they marched around the city of Jericho? What a strange way to fight a battle. When are we going to actually do something? This is such a waste of time. At least, maybe they weren't thinking that's probably what I would have been thinking. Okay, I'll do it. But it doesn't make much sense. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now here's, this sounds like a little more positive example of faith. She didn't have much to go on. She simply told the spies what she'd heard and concluded, I know the Lord has given you the land because that the fear of you has fallen upon us. Based on that, based on what little she knew, she pleaded for her life and that of her family. And then she obeyed the instructions of the spies to tie a scarlet cord in the window and her life and those with her were spared. I want us to note two things here. These heroes, these great examples of faith, are ordinary people like you and me. What they demonstrate really is that they are examples of God's extraordinary grace. You see, you don't need special strengths or skills to live by faith. Second, I just want us to note that there is no formula for faith. Each example is unique because God has un numerous ways to act on behalf of his people. So in one situation, to save the people, he parts the Red Sea and then drowns the Egyptians. But in Jericho, he has a whole totally different method of saving the people. And the people are marching around for seven days, and then the wall falls down, and the men rush in to mop up. The common element in this chapter is that it's God acting uniquely for each person in each situation. Well, let's continue with our list that, we've been, that we read this morning. Next, four of the judges are named as heroes of the faith. Now, I find this a curious list. Let's look at them. Gideon. Now, we know him because he put out the fleece to be sure of God's will. He defeated the huge Midian army with just 300 men. Sounds pretty good. Later, we read he had many, many wives, and he caused Israel to stumble by making a golden ephod that was a snare to Gideon and his family. Kind of loses a little bit of that heroic status. He did not finish well. All right, what about... Barak, he's next. Now, again, I went back and looked up the passage. Deborah, a prophetess, told him, what are you doing? Just standing here, get up and gather your army and go and fight the enemy. And look at how heroic Barak was. He said, if you will go with me, I will go. 
but if you will not go with me, I will not go. <laughs> Seems to me that Deborah's name ought to be here, not Brock's, don't you think? All right, next, Samson. A superhero, right? With a little lust problem, maybe? How about Jephthah? He's the one that made that foolish vow that if God gave him the victory, the first living thing out of his house would be offered to God as a burnt sacrifice. And he was trapped when his daughter, it was his daughter that emerged from the house to greet him. You getting the picture? These heroes are flawed. And what strikes me about this list, not one of them is perfect. You see, God doesn't wait until we are perfect before he uses us. He takes flawed people as they are, and if they respond by faith, even with a little faith the size of mustard seed, he does great things through them, even as he is transforming them. This is critical. You see, God is the one who always performs the miracle. Let's backtrack to Moses for a minute. What did he actually do at the sea, at the Red Sea? He held out his staff. It was not a magic staff. Didn't have superpowers. He just held out the staff as God said, and God did the miracle. God turned the Nile into blood. God parted the Red Sea. God put the sea over the Egyptian army and destroyed them. There's no magic on the part of these heroes. They simply did what God told them to do, and then God worked the miracle. Well, let's go on with our list. David. Now, that's my kind of hero. A great warrior, a man after God's own heart, certainly deserving to be in this list. He's also an adulterer and a murderer. Then there's Samuel, the last of the judges, drawn into the service of God as a little boy, truly a great leader, but a rather poor parent. He appointed his sons Joel and Abijah as judges over Israel, but he didn't train them, he didn't prepare them. They did not walk with God, but took bribes and perverted justice and caused a crisis in the country. At this point, the writer of Hebrews stops naming individuals. His next category, he mentions the prophets, not by name, but as a group. Now, I wonder why none of them are mentioned. You see, what about Elijah? What about Jeremiah we wrote, read, about, read from this morning? Or Elijah, now there's a real hero. To me, they are the ones that names should be in here. But they're all lumped together with all the minor prophets. And look what they did. Verses 33 and 34. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, so all of these prophets all lumped in one group. And three more groups are mentioned. Next, women. 
Only two are actually named in this chapter. We've already noted Rahab the prostitute. She's a hero because she believed and her life was transformed. She's even listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew. The other woman is Sarah. By faith she received power to conceive after she passed childbearing age. She considered him faithful who had promised. But many more women are implied in this group, like the prophets. And we read a summary there. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And that and this, this is where I want us to come to the key point today. How many of us would like to be listed in this chapter? Would any of you like to be recognized in Hebrews 11? I see some heads nodding. Well, I've got good news for you. Look at verse 36. Anybody see that? What's it say? What's it say? Jerry, I, you're reading it. Others. Others. <laughs> that could be you. Could be you. Could be me. You see, these groups, I think, are, this is important. Women, some, others. We all can qualify for the hall of faith. However, there may be a price to pay. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword and went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Maybe I'm not so sure I want to be part of this. It's a rather challenging passage here. This is where the persecuted church, I believe, today can help us. My wife and I have seen so many of our brothers and sisters around the world living, living out their faith in the most hostile circumstances. Let me return to the story I started the story of Samuel. You see, I only told you part of the story, the part that I like to focus on, the glory part, the birth of a church in a Muslim country. In fact, Samuel's conversion split his family. The first time I met him, he was actually in hiding because his brother, the other mullah, had vowed to kill him. Note the parallel to our gospel today. Jesus said, do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, father against son and son against father. That was the case of my friend Samuel. His family was split because of his conversion. We have seen that so many times we actually know of situations where Muslim converts have been killed by the family members because of the perceived shame of converting to Christianity. A few years after I met Samuel, I spent a full day with him with his brand new wife. 
they had actually been betrothed when she was three years old. <laughs> and uh, when he came to faith in Christ, he felt he had to tell his wife. Now, in that culture, sometimes some of the Christians that I met, some of the converts, and I would ask him, well, what about your wife? What does she think? He says, oh, I just went home and told her she's a Christian now. <laughs> well, that's the way it is often in that culture. But Samuel didn't do that. He was actually very wise. Because when he told him about how he'd come to faith in Christ, his wife-to-be said, no, you haven't. You know, come to your senses. You're a Muslim. You were born a Muslim, you will die a Muslim. He began to read to her, tell her the stories from Scripture. It took him several months, but she came herself to believe and become a follower of Jesus. And this day that I spent with him, uh, she was with us. They'd been married eight months. I have no idea what the age difference was between them. But uh, she was dressed in an amazing uh, gold outfit. I guess the first year of marriage in that culture, they... The women dress up lavishly to celebrate uh, their marriage. We spent the day talking about all the different ways that he was ministering in this country. If any of you have my book, Secret Believers, the witnessing, the ways that he ministered are embedded in that story in Secret Believers. Uh, extremely creative. As we were finishing up the day, he, started, he told me about a dream he had about climbing a cliff and reaching a nest. I don't know if it was a nest of eagles, but there was a nest of little uh, eggs that were hatching chicks. And we talked about what that meant. He believed he was being called to pastor and protect a flock of vulnerable new believers. And as we parted and I prayed for him, I truly believed this man was God's man, the apostle to this Muslim country. Two weeks later, I received a phone call. He'd been captured by Islamic extremists. He was tortured and he was killed. When I think of my friend Samuel, these words in verse 38 stand out. The world was not worthy of him. Samuel is one of eight men I've known personally who have been martyred for their faith. Let's read the next couple of verses of Hebrews 11, verses 39. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. My friend Samuel did not receive the fulfillment of the promise. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I can't begin to say I fully understand what that verse means. But somehow, what my friend Samuel has done is for my benefit and for the benefit of us to help us continue pressing forward in our faith. 
You see, the story God is writing is not finished. Each one of us in this room has a part to play. We are all part of the story. And today, Samuel is one of the witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 12.1. I like to picture that seed, see, that scene like a huge stadium with all of these heroes of faith who have gone before us, watching us, and rooting for us to finish well the race each one of us has been called to run. You know, in this world, we like to be recognized for our achievements. We have halls of fame for sports and music and other achievements. But when it comes to faith, glory is deferred. Jesus here is our example. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We'd like to get the glory, but do we, are we willing to pay the price? Jesus paid the price, and he showed us the way to pay the price. Today, faith means that we stand up for Jesus in spite of opposition. It means we strip off all the, sun, the sin that hinders us in our race, and we faithfully do the work that God has put before us. One thing I was struck by in, the, in verse 30, where it says that the walls of Jericho fell down, each of the men were instructed when those walls fell to go straight in and take care of what was right in front of them. Don't worry about what the man on either side of you is doing. Don't worry about the whole city. Don't worry about Rahab unless you've been assigned to rescue her. When that wall fell, straightforward. You do what God's put in front of you. The key in running a race is to focus on the finish line, not on what others around us are doing. We focus on Jesus. He didn't relish the suffering and the cross. He despised the shame, but he knew the joy that would come if he endured. That's our model. This life is difficult. None of us enjoy the suffering and the shame we sometimes feel as Christians, but we focus on the joy that is to come when we finish our race and we meet Jesus face to face. We get a taste of that triumph each Sunday when we come to the communion table. As we take the bread and drink the wine, we remember what he endured for us. We remember that we're part of a great company that has gone before us. And we are energized by this heavenly food to endure and persevere in our trials. By faith, following the examples of those who went before us and who have shown us what faith looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for 
Christ Our Hope congregation. And I thank you that each one of us has been given a race to run. Lord, may we be inspired by this chapter in Hebrews to follow the example of those who've gone before us. We admit our weakness. We admit our shortcomings. But we admit also that and recognize that you are faithful and you are the one who does the miracles. May we be faithful to follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us, to run the race, enduring whatever suffering is required, and may we finish well to hear those words we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.